welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Schell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. I'm taking step two today, and I want to just show you things that I counsel at the altar all the time. I'm talking to people all the time who are dealing with things, and I'm trying in five or ten minutes to just just machine gun this kind of information into people. And if you've ever come forward, you know the experience. Like, whoa, what was that? You know, well, now I'm slowing it down and explaining it carefully. But these lessons are absolutely critical. See, it's not enough to tell somebody to walk, you know, in purity, walk free or, or, or rejoice in the Lord. You can't just scold people into victory. They have to know how. They want to, but they need to know how. And there are genuine practical skills in how you do it. It's not just automatic. So that's what we're learning. We're going to learn today uh, step two. Step one, if you recall, is we have a changed heart. Through repentance and through faith in Jesus Christ, we receive indwelling the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not just some sort of uh, religious talk that's put on the front end. That's a foundation. If that's not there, none of the rest of this works. There's got to be the changed heart. You understand? There's got to be the Spirit and the Lord in our lives. And when that He comes in, anything, any healing, any deliverance, any, any new strength to walk in victory is present. So now it's a matter of laying hold of my new strength. Father God, we ask that the Word would open up. And we open our hearts to the Word right now. We want to hear from you. We want to understand. We want to live We want to walk in in your ways. And Father, I pray for the grace so it's your voice we hear and not mine. Come, dear one, and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems that when people are born again, certain addictions or weaknesses drop away immediately. Almost without effort, an area of temptation or assault will be lifted out of our lives when Jesus comes in, who's had such an experience? You've got, when you got saved, certain things just disappeared. You don't even know where they went. It's like, hallelujah, you know, amen? All right, but not everything, right? And what an amazing miracle it is when that happens. But oddly enough, certain other problem areas don't disappear or return quickly to plague us for years. Why some things are removed and others allowed to remain, I don't know. But I suspect it has something to do with tribulation bringing about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. That's Romans 5. It seems it's the struggles of life that humble us and teach us to depend on God. In fact, most of us would have to admit it's in our trials that we mature in faith and become wise. Would you agree to that? You know, if you look at people, and there aren't many, who, who grow up in a highly insulated, protected environment, no real problems, no real difficulties, everything's kind of provided for them, they are very shallow. 
They may be nice people, but there's just no depth to them at all because they've not been challenged. It's in the pain, it's in the struggles that we begin to ask the deep questions and we begin to reach deep for the power of God. We don't do it until we're pushed to do it. Uh, I, I wish it were otherwise. <laughs> so maybe we shouldn't be surprised that certain problems are left behind for us to learn to overcome. It isn't that God doesn't want us to be free, and it isn't that he withholds help we need. But real freedom requires us to make costly choices. It forces us to daily take up our cross and follow him. And as painful as that sounds, that's a good thing. Now, I'm going to remind you of of Romans, I mean, all of Romans 1 through 8. So you have the overview, because what I'm teaching you in these weeks right now, in Steps to Freedom, is really applying the key issues of, of Romans, particularly Romans 8. And so while I'm doing the daily Bible study, and your daily Bible study continues to progress through these chapters of Romans, I'm simply saying, let's get real practical, and let's learn how do we apply what Paul's teaching in this section. So remember what Romans 1 through 8 was. Romans chapter 1, Paul says, people who don't have a Bible, yes, Gentiles, but his point is people who don't have the Bible, the word of God to guide them, need to be saved. Why? Well, they worship the creation and not the creator and have violated their consciences. Romans chapter 2, Paul says people who do have a Bible, in this case it was the Jews, but it would be the true of us, in the church today, people who do have a Bible need to be saved. Why? Well, they know right from wrong, but they hypocritically sin anyway. Romans chapter 3, everybody needs to be saved. In fact, by God's standards, we are worse than we realize. You are really rotten. Hallelujah. You know, and his point is, everybody needs God. And, and so nobody's earned their way to heaven. Which brings us to Romans chapter 4. There is only one way to be saved, and please note this, and there has only been one way since the beginning of the human race. There aren't two ways, three ways, things have changed over time. There is only one way to be saved. There has only ever been one way to be saved. And that is the righteousness which God gives to those who have faith. So Paul takes us right back to Abraham and models salvation from Abraham's life. You understand? Noah, Enoch, Adam, who, anyone who's ever been saved got it one way. And then we still get it one way. The righteousness God gives to those who have faith. Romans chapter 5. Paul explains, here's what God had to do so he could justly judge sin and yet still forgive people and give them this righteousness. So he explains what Christ has done. Romans chapter 6. Does the gift of righteousness mean God doesn't care if we become righteous in our daily lives? In other words, if it's all given to us, can we just sort of live on the way we are unchanged and God's okay with it? The answer is absolutely not. No, his gift has freed us from slavery to the appetites and temptations of our flesh so we can obey him. Remember, you and I are being made sons and daughters of the living God. There's no options. We are becoming like him. Somebody say, thank heavens. Yeah. None of us want you to stay the way you are, frankly. 
or me. Romans 7, as a Christian, I have a new heart that wants to obey God. I love his ways, but I find there are still forces in my flesh that hold me captive. How do I get free? The passions, the temptations, the fears, the emotions, the, all of the controlling forces in me, Paul says as he, as he describes a Christian in chapter 7, my heart wants to obey, my heart wants to do the right thing, but there are powers that, in me that prevent me from doing what I want to do. The very evil I don't want to do, I do. The, the good that I, I want to do, I don't. And then he ends the whole thing with, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? This, the powers of this, this body that's controlling me. I'm a body-controlled man, an emotion, temper, passion, lust-driven individual. How am I going to get free of this? Answer, Romans chapter 8. The key to freedom is learning to draw on the power of the Holy Spirit who now lives inside us. This is something I must learn to do. It's not automatic. And then Paul in that chapter, we can't miss it, makes an, another massively important point. He says, here is the depth of God's commitment to us while we're being changed. Even though I still struggle and fail as a Christian, the righteousness God gave me because I have faith does not fail me. Through it all, I continue to be loved by God and saved. So while I'm learning to walk in all of this, while I'm learning, while God's changing my life, I'm not cast away. I'm, he keeps covering me while I'm being changed. Now that's a salvation that you and I can be saved with. Amen? That's a salvation that works for people like us. I, I love Paul, Paul in that chapter, and we're going to read it now in a minute. He concludes the chapter and he says, you know, who will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? You know, who can condemn us? For Christ Jesus stands at the right hand interceding for us. Isn't that good? And then, we, then he says this one. You, you remember, and we're going we're gonna to read it right now. Romans 8, would you turn there? And I'm going to have you read out loud a couple of these passages. Romans 8, verse 1. In fact, whatever version you have, let's, let's say it out loud. I'd, I'd really like you to memorize this one if you don't have it. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do it again. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I'll, I'll go on. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ, this Holy Spirit that's entered you, has set you free from the law of sin and death, this power that has been controlling you. For what the law could not do, the Bible, with all of its good commandments, what couldn't it do? Couldn't change me to, to live a holy life. Couldn't make me clean and pure. All it did is make me condemned and ashamed. What it couldn't do, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He had to die for our sins, first of all, as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh and set us free and gave us the Spirit so that the requirement of the law, the Bible, might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh under the influence and controls of our body and the old nature, but according to the Spirit. Now that's the key and that's what we're learning to do. And then I want to go down to verse 12 and just read you three verses. 
So then, brethren, we are not under obligation. We, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, the body, to live according to the, the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We have to, by the Spirit, learn to put to death the powers, the controls, the influences, the passions, the temptations, and frankly, the spiritual assaults. And that's a whole other part of this. They come against us. We have to learn to walk in the Spirit, and then we're free. That's the key. All right, here we go. Passivity versus partnership. What is God waiting for? Why am I still struggling with this? I asked God to take it away, but he hasn't. The only way some people know how to respond when overwhelmed by temptations and spiritual assaults is to pray, asking God to take it away, and then wait passively for the problem to miraculously disappear. Have you ever tried that approach? Oh, God, take it away. Oh, I hate this. And maybe even you showed how sincere you were by crying. Huh? So God's up there going, oh, it's terrible. How'd it work? Like, not at all, right? This is a real point of confusion. I mean, I'm making a little light of it here, but it's a real point of confusion. I asked God to take this out of my life, and he hasn't. Maybe I'm just supposed to bear this cross. Maybe he made me this way. Maybe he's okay with it. I've heard people come up to all those kinds of conclusions. The only way some people know how to respond when overwhelmed by temptations and spiritual assaults is to pray, asking God to take it away, and then wait passively, see there it is, for the problem to miraculously disappear. If it stops, praise God. If it doesn't, well, he must have decided not to answer my prayer, so I guess I'm stuck with this for now. This attitude places the responsibility for freedom entirely on God. As if I had no part to play other than asking for the right thing. But living in freedom requires me to participate as a partner with him. I have a very real part to play. Yes, of course, he supplies the power and I can do nothing without him. But the truth is, it's not God who's holding back my deliverance. It's me. I have deep attitudes that need changing and steps of faith that need to be taken. Only then will the miracle I long for arrive. Here's one attitude that must be present before God can set me free. Over the course of this, we'll look at several attitudes, but this one is absolutely foundational. If the changed heart's the first, this one's the second. Hitting bottom. I must be honest and ask myself this question. Am I really willing to live without this? It's far too easy to answer, well, of course I am. I asked God to take it away, didn't I? And very likely that request was sincere. I recognize this is wrong or makes me feel miserable, so I want to be rid of it. But the human heart has the capacity to want things, different things, at different levels. Did you hear that? The human heart has the capacity to want different things at different levels. At one level, I want something but at another level, I don't. 
I am not suggesting this person is a hypocrite. I'm su suggesting that there tends to be a conflict in, in, the, in our hearts. We talked about receiving Jesus Christ, surrendering to him. Do I think that a person with this kind of conflict in their heart didn't really mean that they surrendered to Jesus? Not at all. Not at all. I think when you surrender to Jesus, you generically and generally, for all you know, say, God, I, I, I surrender to you. I want your will. I want to become the man, the woman you've called me to be. And you mean it. It's just that you didn't realize he was going to take this. You know, it's like, wait a minute. You, could we just manage it better? You're going to take it? What are you going to do? Kill it? And you didn't realize God was going to say, by the way, that has to go. I mean, not a little bit. I'm taking it completely out of your life. Okay? And you realize you're not entirely okay with it. This is a bit of a surprise, and this is not what you expected. This is not hypocrisy. I believe this is the process. I think we all discover these. At one level, I want something. At another level, I don't. Deep down, I love certain sins or have grown comfortable with, with familiar areas of pain. That may say, sound odd, but it is not. It's true. At that level, I really, I'm frightened by the thought that God might actually take something away or heal that part of me. It's hard to imagine life without it. I'm conflicted. I've asked God to take something away, but at the same time, I'm terrified he might. This indecision can prevent me from receiving my miracle year after year after year. Sadly, not all of me wants it gone yet. When you get caught in those situations where you say, I've just asked God and asked God and I've repented and I've repented and you're in the cycle. It just goes round and round and round and round and round. This issue hasn't been resolved. Because when it is, the rest begins to break loose quite quickly. Go with me to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul had quite the time with this church. They really roughed him up. They disrespected him. They accused him of being a phony. They, oh, it, it was merciless. And he, had been there, he was their founding pastor. Uh, for a year and a half, he was in Corinth. Uh, he, he, he started the church. He established the leaders. But boy, did they give him a difficult time. He hears that one of the young men in the church had been sleeping with his father's wife. Now, probably what you have is a thing where, and, and it was very common, you have an older man married to a younger woman. And then his son, probably by his first wife, and this young wife have fallen in love and are having an affair. Well, the church knows about it and has done nothing to stop it. My guess is this young man is related to someone important in the church. And it's one of those things where we're just not going to look at this. Uh, we all love him and, uh, you know, he, youthful people will do youthful things and da-da-da-da-da. Well, Paul gets word of it. He's in Ephesus at the time. Uh, across the, uh, the Aegean Sea, and he writes, he, he, first of all, he prays and discerns, is this, is this happening? 
And the Lord shows him indeed it is. And then he takes this step of discipline and he writes back to them. And he says, first of all, he scolds the church. He says, you've become arrogant and proud. How dare you not deal with this? Really for two reasons. First of all, for the young man's own soul. See, as much as I say the grace of God covers us, it covers us as long as I'm living in real faith. But sin, deliberate defiant sin, really twists our thinking. And that's something we got to investigate a little further. I encounter it and I discover it. People who at one moment had their head on straight and were some of the best, you know, Christian people you ever met. And then they get caught into some sort of deceptive sin. And they stay in it and they lie and deceive and cover all of this. And you watch that person you thought you knew morph into someone very different. Have you observed it? Sin has a terrible power to actually twist someone's thinking and turn them into a different person. Now, at some point, when they finally repent of it and come out of it, you discover the person you once knew. It's really odd. It's, it's like, where did you go? Uh, where, were you off in a, a never-never land? Or, you know, well, but it's like the person disappears. So all I know is sin has a tremendously uh, confusing power and twists people's thinking. Well, we've got that going. So Paul says, you're allowing this young man to put his soul in jeopardy. And so Paul says, what I've done is lift the spiritual covering off of him, allowing Satan to attack his body. He specifically says this. And then he says, so that his soul might be saved, his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. He says, you know, you put him at jeopardy. And then he says this, don't you realize that sin like that spreads it's corrosive. It's like one bad apple spoils the You put a rot into the middle of the church and other people will pick it up. Don't think you can do that without having trouble. So he, he goes through that. Well, he writes them and, and they don't respond well, apparently. Whatever went on, there's a real conflict that goes on. Paul ends up at some point weeping and, and, and then ugly exchange happens. Uh, he then writes them back and all of this has gone on. And then finally he hears they have indeed done what he asked. They've disciplined the young man. And in fact, the young man then repented and grieved and returned is, is the picture that I see as I read through it. And then we, we listen to these comments in light of all of that. Second Corinthians 7 verse 8. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. So he says, man, did this thing blow up? <laughs> uh, and I didn't expect, I didn't expect the, the ugly event we had. And uh, I, I almost regretted writing the letter. But he said, now I rejoice, verse 9, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of what? You see it? Repentance. There's a distinction here. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. This was a good sorrow. So that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, the good kind, produces repentance without, leading, without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces what? Yeah. So there's sorrow and there's sorrow. And really the point of sorrow is to lead to repentance. Let's distinguish, distinguish something. The word is grieving. Sorrow over the damage I've caused. Paul says, if all I did is make you grieve 
over, the, over what you did and it hadn't led to repentance, it would have been a, a terrible thing. Grieving is not really redemptive. Grieving isn't the turning point. You know, you can confront people with things and they can, or they can get caught and they can grieve. They can weep. They can be very, very sorry, very angry at themselves, very hateful toward themselves. They can go through a whole cycle of response. But if it has not come to repentance, which is a true change of heart and mind where you suddenly see there's a revelation in it. I'll say more in a minute. If they haven't gone to come to repentance and all you do are deal, is dealing with the past, that doesn't do any good at all. Sorrow, grief, has to do with the past. Tears, remorse, groaning, moaning, I hate myself, I can't believe I did this. All of that does nothing. Unless it leads to repentance. And repentance, listen, does not have to do with the past. Repentance has to do with the future. Do you see it? Sorrow is over the past. Repentance is over the future. Sorrow does no good in the long run. Unless, of course, it leads me to change my future. The way I respond, the changed heart. Repentance begins with a revelation. And I mean a revelation from God, I think. I don't know if any human just gets, we just see it. I think God has to turn the lights on and show us. What am I doing? This is evil and full of death. It's killing me and the people I love and it's breaking God's heart. One moment a person doesn't see that. They're still gaming, they're still dancing, they're still lying, they're lying to themselves, they're lying to everybody else. They think they're going to get a handle on this, they're in the, full on in their own self-effort to try to fix it. They're making promises. And the next moment, the lights go on and they suddenly think, what am I doing? This is crazy. Seeing, that moment of seeing is a gift to God. The prodigal son's an example, you recall. You have a young man, takes his inheritance, uh, wastes it, probably in a, in a city that we visit. If, if, if Jesus' parable doesn't mention the place, but it's probably Bethshan, which is a, a city we visit when we go to Israel. And you need to rem- know this, that there were 10 major Greek cities in Israel at the time. And not, they, when we go to Beth Shon, one of the things you see is this elaborate bathhouse with the steam rooms. And I mean, it's really amazing. It's all still there. And then next to it, a brothel. So he tells the story of this young man who goes and spends all of his money, you know, wantonly. He's drinking and, 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 and probably going to the brothel. Ends up squandering his, his entire estate and, and, and working for a man raising pigs. Well, did they raise pigs? You bet they raised pigs in those areas. In fact, the pig was a holy animal and used in sacrifices. Figure that out. And so there he is. It says feeding the pigs pods. Now, pods would have been carob pods. Do you know what carob trees are? They, they, in your warm climates, there's lots of them. And, and you have this long brown leathery uh, thing, and, and then it's got seeds in it, pods in it, uh, the, or the carob seeds. You make carob chocolate out of it, you know, that fake chocolate? Yeah, it's, it's edible. 
And uh, so are the pods. And so they feed the whole thing. So the pigs, well, the, the kids opening this stuff up and eating the, eating the seeds and probably boiling them. And he's living off of the stuff he has to feed the pigs. And at some point, it says he came to himself. And he says, what am I doing? He says, it would, I would be better to off as a, as a slave in my father's household. I should go back and say, make me a bondservant. Father, I don't deserve to be called your son anymore. I've just absolutely made a fool of myself. But he said, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. Would you take me back as a servant, not as your son? I don't deserve that. But let me just work for you and be in your household. That moment where it breaks upon him is the moment of repentance. You see it? Not just sorrow, not like I hate pods and I hate pigs. What have I done? I've ruined my life, wasted my inheritance, everything's wrong. Not to the boo- it's not the boo-hoo moment. It's not all the boo-hooing. It's the, this is nuts. The waking up and seeing it from God's perspective. That's the moment of breakthrough. Listen, that's what has to happen not only when you get saved, that has to happen in these areas where we're held bonded, in bondage. These areas where the enemy keeps having an opportunity, where the door keeps opening, where he has a way of hurting us. We have to see that too. Because we become foolish, as it were, in certain areas of our lives. All of us, I think. For freedom to come, I must see the enemy's lie for what it is. This has to die. It can't be managed more efficiently, or pushed to a hidden corner, it must be crucified. You have to realize that what's going to, in order to get free, you can't manage it better, get a handle on it, push it in a corner, hide it better. You have to be willing to let this area of your life completely die. Now that's the scary thing. Galatians 5.24, Paul says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I mean, you kill it. You kill it. What would it take to convince me to let God completely take this away from me? Here's an illustration. For what it's worth, I made it up. (laughs) Let's suppose I'm on a diet. And there happens to be a cake in the refrigerator. Now... I say to myself, there is no way I'm eating that cake. I'm on a diet. This isn't going to happen. But as the day goes on, the cake kind of calls to me. I keep thinking, oh, I'm not doing this. No way. I'm not doing this. No. And I think, well, one little slice wouldn't probably do much. You know, and I I kind of wander by the refrigerator. I look at it. And then these strong things, I begin to think, oh, I can't help myself. I need this. Did did I tell you I was victimized as a child? And I, (laughs) it's, I can't help myself. Oh, oh, it's dragging me. Help, help, help. Somebody stop me. And I'm being dragged to this thing. Finally, I take the thing out with trembling hands and I put it on the counter and I go for the knife to cut, cut that piece of cake. And why, there's a little card on the side of it. 
I hadn't noticed before. And I looked down at that thing and it, and it says, warning, this cake contains rat poison. <laughs> now, it's amazing how quickly that urge, that controlling, compelling uh, force that I was helpless before is broken. Now, in, a, in, a, in the wink of an eye, I would fight you to put a piece of that thing in my mouth. Where one moment before, I couldn't help myself. I was being dragged by forces too big for me to the refrigerator. You see what I'm saying? What's the difference? I see the death in the cake. It, it's not just that I'm, I'm disciplining myself and I'm not going to do this. I suddenly get it. This thing's deadly. Now, I, I don't want to touch it. Absolutely changed my opinion. I had this happen last weekend. I'm sitting next to one of my granddaughters. And we were having strawberry shortcake, I think. And, and uh, she had left a bunch of strawberries on her plate, you know. And so I said, you want those? She says, no. And I go, doink. And I, had already, and I already ate it. And then Sarah says, you know, I don't think I do that. She's had mono. I seriously considered going in and seeing if I could purge. <laughs> and I said, Jesus, I just trust you for this one. <laughs> you see how my attitude changed in a moment? I couldn't help myself. Those strawberries had to be eaten. And, but boy, when you tell me that, all of a sudden, I'm free. Hallelujah. <laughs> the urge has been broken. What changed? I realized it may taste good, but it contains death. Remember, this is the fundamental lie that began in the Garden of Eden. You won't die. And you know they didn't right away. You won't die. And so the devil is constantly saying, there's no death in that. You won't die. You can do this and not die. And you won't right away but there's a power in it and in time they surely did we have to want to stop not just because we know it's wrong but because we too see the death and have come to hate the sin at the deepest level we must want it gone it can't just be that, that kind of uh, parent child thing where God says don't do this and we go oh okay and we're frightened like little children afraid of being punished we want to do it it would be wonderful we, in fact we just wish God was okay with it you know if he was just alright with it boy what a relief that would be because this is really frankly a pretty nice part of my life and I just don't want to let go of it that person who's got that kind of attitude that says, I got to say it's wrong and I've got to say I'm sorry and I got to play this game because I know God's upset with this. He doesn't like this. He's forbidden this. But even here, I still wish I could. That person hasn't seen the death because God's not being silly. He's not saying, I'm going to deprive you of something wonderful. He's saying, this will kill you. Don't do this. It'll kill you. It's revelation is the moment I see the death in this thing. And when that happens, I'm on my way to freedom very quickly. Remember, oddly enough, by the way, depression also requires similar decision. I know this personally. After a while, we become so accustomed to being depressed, feeling good is unsettling. And that may sound strange, but it's really there. We wait suspiciously, wondering when it will return. <laughs> 
You know, I, I, you'd wake up and feel pretty good, and you think, oh, man, when's it going to hit? And, you, you know, I'm, I'm not depressed, but yeah, I'm going to be. When's it going to hit? And, and it, you're really uncomfortable. You almost rather go back to it, and so you're, you're not, you're not going to be surprised. We're afraid to hope for freedom. I don't want to get my hopes up that I'm going to get a, be, a, be free of this because when it comes again, I'll just be, da- I'll be more depressed. It's a, it's a really strange thing that happens. We get accustomed to pain. We get accustomed to assault. We get accustomed to, to this kind of bondage. And it, it, we have to make a deep decision to come out. Remember, God wants to teach us why something is wrong. Not just that it's wrong. Or just give us a command to obey. He not only wants us to change our behavior, he wants us to think like he thinks. Love what he loves. Hate what he hates. He is fathering us into his likeness. It's not enough for God to just say, don't do that and have us just not do it out of just plain old fear. He's raising us to be his children. You're being prepared for eternity to rule and reign with Christ. I won't go into all of that, but you're being trained now. And it's important to your heavenly father, not just that you don't do it, but that you understand and agree with him why this is wrong so that you too see the death in it you're no longer deceived he wants your thinking is very important to him when this decision is made the resources of God are released and real freedom can come quickly so long as the person is taught how to live in freedom and we're going on with that later another time but until this decision is made there will be a constant pattern of relapse sorrow Asking for forgiveness, promises to do better, and then relapse again. And you've probably seen that with people. They relapse. They're so, so sorry. They hate themselves. Can't believe they did it. Oh, please please forgive them. I'll never do this again. I promise you. I can't believe I did it. But I got it this time. And you can just count on it. They're going down again. Because they're still relying on themselves. Their promises are are born out of their willpower. Trust me, I'll never do it again. I don't trust your heart as far as I can throw it. Nor should you trust mine. It's when the man or woman is trusting the power of God and has learned to walk in God that you know there's going to be real freedom. And until that comes, they won't. Turning around. It appears there are three ways for a person to arrive at this decision. All right. We've talked about repentance, Pastor. How do, we, how do we get there? How does this come to us? As I see it, I see three ways. First of all, actually hit bottom. Thump. I become so devastated. My self-effort has failed so often. The death hidden in my sin has become so obvious that I am faced with the choice to either forsake Christ and yield entirely to the sin. In other words, there's no more games here. Just forsake the Lord and go on with it whole hog. Or give up all pretense and take whatever radical steps are necessary. Often these are the steps I've avoided for years. It gets so bad. I've made such a mess. My life is in such ruins that not even I can deny I am helplessly trapped. Now, either I'm going to just say, oh, well, and go on and forsake the Lord 
and live in this thing. Because you see, this, these sins that start out one way, they grow. The devil is hooking us and he's dragging us along a path. Sin doesn't stay the same place. You can't control it. That's, that's the deception. I can manage this. I can keep it to a minimum. I can, I can use it discreetly. And then the thing hooks you and you won't. And then it starts flaring out. And then you start just blowing things to pieces. And you promise you'll never do it again. And you're frustrated and you can't believe you ever did it. And then round you go. Round you go. Some people, it appears, have to hit bottom. They have to get so low that there's simply no excuses left to be made. That's a tragic way to live, by the way. You've created an awful lot of mess by the time you get there. But it, it's a measure of your own stubbornness and your own pride, to be quite frank with you, that you thought you could handle it and just would not humble yourself before God. But that's, that, that's in the heart, and we, we can all fight areas of that. Secondly, walk into the anointing. I describe it that way because I don't know how better. In other words, you, you ended up getting trapped in church. Somebody dragged you to church or to a worship service or some kind of place where the power of the Holy Spirit is strongly present. In other words, you accidentally, probably, walked into the presence of God. That person is mercifully given a revelation of their spiritual condition in that, in that environment. God shows me the depth of my sin and his love for me and calls me to take his hand and come out. You're there. Somebody drags you to church, whatever. And oh my goodness, God shows up. And his presence is there and he comes over you. And you begin to, this, this, this pulling back of the veil begins to happen. Even in the middle of it. And you see your sin. And you see your rebellion. And the Lord shows it to you. And he also shows you with this. Because he doesn't condemn us. But he shows you his love for you. And there's always, in a sense, a hand to reach to you saying, come on, let's get out of this. As though you're going down, 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 down in an elevator. It stops at a floor. The door opens up and God says, you have a moment, come out now. And people do come out in those moments. You know, in a, in a, in a practical sense, I think all of us, when we worship, have these things, in, 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 as it were, in microcosm. I don't go through a, a, a weekend, but what in worship, the Holy Spirit shows me something in my life. Stephen, here's a pride, here's a fear, here's, a, here's an ambition, here's a, you know, you, 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 you handle that way too roughly, you go back and apologize. I mean, doesn't he do this to you? Yeah. All right. In those, I didn't see it till I got in worship. I felt fine about myself. And then I get into worship and then it's, and he doesn't come and hammer me. This isn't an ugly experience at all. It's not an unpleasant, it's not a downer. But it just comes and I go, wow, ooh, oh, I did that, didn't I? And then I, I quickly give it to him, please forgive me, my Lord. Uh, so communion's here, I'm off, I'm, I'll t not hardly a weekend go by, I didn't take it. And I'm, I'm, I'm just giving it to him and then saying, Father, I, I got you, I, I need to go talk to that person and make that right, I'm sorry. And I go away quite relieved. That miracle process in the spirit, God takes our minds and turns them right side up. Even unbelievers, even people in hard rebellion, they'll almost have to get out of the room. They have to run for the exit and get out because the presence will simply bear down <laughs> and begin to open their eyes and show them themselves. 
that's a good process and an awfully wonderful way of coming out of this. And then the third thing, ask God to show me the truth. You may say as you listen to me today and you say, I hear you, but to be honest with you, that that lights on thing hasn't happened. That repentance thing hasn't happened. But would you earnestly ask him to lift the deception? I mean, in truth, you kind of still love this. You know it's wrong. You know he doesn't want it. But you still sort of love it. And would you ask him to show you your double-mindedness and the death that's hidden in what you're doing? To see this bondage as no friend, but a deadly enemy. God, I don't see it. You know I don't see it. I don't really get it. Would you please give me the gift of revelation? Would you show me why this thing is so deadly in my life? Please show me what it is that I might long and genuinely want it out of my life. I want to want it out. And to be honest with you, I don't yet. That's a perfectly honest approach. And God will take you up on that and let you see. In fact, it's far better than the the first approach. (laughs) That kind of helps you see too, but it's not the best way to go. Would you stand with me? Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And this is how the sun sets us free. That's just not some poetry. That's not something you cross-stitch. And you could. It's a fine thing to cross-stitch. But it's something that really means something. Jesus Christ has come to set us free. All of us, every part of our lives, free to run, free to minister, free to love free to serve, free to be the man, the woman you've been called to be. You got a destiny and God's going to fight for you. He's not going to let you be trapped by the devil. He's not going to let the devil continue to steal. He's going to press you to become all he's called you to be. There's a predestination, we'll get to that, of what you're to be. And God doesn't change his mind. He never changes his mind. And he says, I've called you for this you're going to become this like my son you're going to serve me and you're going to be fruitful and I won't let up he who has begun a good work in you will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ I find that very comforting today maybe there's an area in your life you say man as you've been talking I've got an area where I've been deceived where I don't really see it where I go around the cycle, where I struggle, or there's an area of pain or, 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 or depression that I've frankly just given up hope with and I've decided to live with. And yet, I know God wants it out of my life. And today, I, I, I want the Lord to let me see it for what it is in a sense, not some horrible, you know, uh, ugly thing, but to see what the devil's trying to do and God's power to free me. I need a revelation. I need a revelation. Who today says, I, I already have mine, and I'm, I'm ready to just say to the Lord, Lord, I, I want to crucify this thing. And the crucifying, by the way, is a, is a profound choice concerning that matter where you say, Lord, I genuinely give you this area. You may kill it. You may take it forever. I will forsake it right now. I've done this in an area, some areas of my life, and 
when you really are sincere, it, I mean, he really does it and something changes. Who today needs to say, I got that one. Would you raise your hand? We're just going to pray. Blessed be the Lord. Lord, you see us right now. We love you. We are, we are your sons and your daughters. That's why we're here. That's why the hands are in the air. That's why we are, are, are surrendering at this area of our lives. There's been an area where we have held on or been confused. There's an area of bondage where the enemy has held us. And we are giving that to you right now. We are surrendering it to you. Jesus, not just to give us strength to manage it better. In fact, it's, this is a scary thought. We want you to crucify it. We want you to break its power over us. We are willing to let it go forever. To have this completely removed from our lives. And trust that you will take care of the need. You will fulfill us. You will provide. You will protect. That we don't have to be full of fear and anger and and, and, and lust and greed and depression. These things do not have to control our lives. We can walk free. For you will be more than enough. What you give to us will be far richer and deeper. And we believe that. So today, we crucify this thing and give it wholly without reserve to you. And we mean that. Would you just, if you're ready to do that, would you say, Lord Jesus, I surrender this area completely to you. I, with my will, in agreement with you, crucify this thing. I nail it on the cross. I want it dead and gone. I want its power completely broken. I yield my heart to you. You may guide me any way you wish, for I will obey and I will come out. I am no slave. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Jesus Christ has set me free. This will stop. I will walk free and I will please you in all ways. I want to become like you. And I lay hold of you by faith. Thank you that during this, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I'm in Christ Jesus. In his name I confess it. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.